Well, did you notice that awesome banner out there? Come on, wake up, CPC. I know it's kind of early, isn't it? Wasn't that a cool banner, the heaven meets earth? Well, you're going to hear a lot about that this year. And of course, this sermon title is Heaven Meets Earth. So you can guess this is uh, the inaugural sermon that I preach every year, actually a three-part sermon series that I'm preaching. I do something like this every year just to kind of rethink and reimagine what we are all about here as we initiate this uh, year 2019 season of ministry. And as we do that, remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned this idea of the, you know, rediscovering the campaign of all campaigns. And the point of that sermon was simply to say that, that you know, there are many great and noble campaigns that we engage in our life, and, and uh, each of them have their place, but but there is a campaign that transcends all campaigns. There's a campaign that, that all those other campaigns seek to accomplish but can't do, not at least in themselves. And that, of course, is the great campaign of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a campaign that makes the assumption that our greatest problem in life is God. See, every campaign is targeting a problem, and the campaign of the gospel targets the problem of God. What do I mean by that? That's kind of awkward, isn't it? But I mean that, that at the end of the day, we even heard about it today, that, that God is, is justly angry. God is justly offended. The God of creation, the God who holds the balance of our life in his hands, who controls every aspect of your life, who decrees all things whatsoever that come to pass in your life, this is God you want to be right with. And we're not when we reject him when we defy him as our Lord, when we, when we reject the thankful heart that would give to him our love and our affection, and, and we give that love and affection to other gods of our own making. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God targets his justifiable anger on himself in the mystery of the Trinity when he sent his son and gave us Jesus Christ who paid uh, the just penalty, if you will, the satisfied the offense by his perfect life being made in substitution for our life. That's the greatest campaign of all. And, and how sad it is that we would lose our passion and lose our soul to campaigns that at best are penultimate. And we talked a little bit about that. Well, this week you could just as well say then that, that I could have named this sermon The Hope of All Hopes. For at the end of that great campaign there is a hope. And what is that hope? What is it that, that we're striving for? What is it that we pray and yearn for deeper than any other yearning in our life? You could say, in fact, that this hope uh, is the hope of the whole Scripture. It's the hope that transcends all the other hopes that you identify with in the Psalms and, in, and throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a hope that is initiated in Genesis and it's culminated in, in revelations, and there's never a redemptive era where this hope is not front and center as pertaining to the promise of God and what that promise is. This incredible hope, and yes, it pertains to heaven on earth, is perfectly reflected in our passage today. It's the place to go where we discover the ultimate human hope being realized in Jacob's, quote, gateway, as he called it, to heaven. That is, 
that this directs us to this heaven meets earth today. And, and I want to particularly point out, at least if you're thinking of this passage, uh, just three simple P's, people, place, and promise, together which I think will help you understand the nature, the circumstance, if you will, the, 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 what the nature of this hope is that we have. And I think you're going to identify with it. But it's an amazing story of Jacob when he encounters this hope and when God gives him assurance of this hope, a hope once given to his forefathers. Let's pray, though, before we do this. So, Father, it's early. We're busy. We're thinking of so much in our life, and we have so many hopes and dreams that we must confess even now are penultimate when we compare it to what really all those dreams are about. And so, Father, help us, Lord, to to discover ourselves in Jacob's story today, but mostly help us to discover you and your incredible promise and what really life is all about. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first of all, the, the people here. You'll notice this is a passage about Jacob. But Jacob is, of course, a successor to Isaac, who is a successor to Abraham, who is a successor to Noah, who is a successor to Adam. Now, I skipped a few folks in there. But the point of that is in each of those successive events, you have these commissionings that are repeated. So I didn't just make this up. This this isn't me just drawing a dotted line. The Scripture is one book. Don't ever mistake it for however many there are. Some of you Sunday school folks can tell me that better than I can. 56, 52, who could do that? Is it 56? 66. How many people knew that? Just curious. Dang, you guys are religious. I love it. Well, if you go back and, and, and remember that, that really we have one book, if you understand this as being a book of God, where he is the ultimate author, writing it through the tapestry of history and the words of men and women that have come through that history, especially anointed of the Holy Spirit to give. But but how could they have possibly? It's these kinds of surveys, which I you know I love to do, these trying to read the Bible as a whole rather than just taking little pieces out of it and talking about it. And and until you do that, you're not going to see the grand scheme of the scripture. And so what we come to is a people, a covenant people represented in a federal sense by Jacob. Jacob is the federal representative of the covenant people of God in succession to those former covenant heads. And here he is given the exact same commission as was given to Noah in Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply. Abraham in Genesis 17, be fruitful and multiply with a vision that the whole world would become the Eden of God. That, of course, begins with, with, with Adam where God gave to Adam this great commission to be fruitful and multiply, wherein the vision was that that this place of creation would expand into the whole earth. And as we'll see, if anything describes Eden, it is this place of delight, set apart by the very gracious presence of the Lord himself. Heaven meets earth. And so Jacob, in succession to Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Isaac, is being this representative. We pick up then in the story of Jacob's life, where Jacob, we're told in verse 10, left Beersheba and went towards Haram. 
The context of that is, of course, that, that if you remember the story, all you religious people, and if you don't like me, then don't worry, I'm not very religious and I can't remember it either, except that I had to study it this week. So therefore, the story is this, that God had decreed Jacob and not Esau to be this federal representative of the covenant people of God. They were identical twins, but Esau had come out first, and Esau had figured that he was the man. And by God's decree indicating the grace of the gospel that God had ultimately determines these things in a way that it is not predicated upon our works or righteousness, but on God's ultimate decree. And see, that's the basis of, of, of grace. You have no grace except for by the sovereignty of God. For if at any moment in our redemptive history it is dependent upon man, then of course it's not grace anymore. And we live in fear. The story of Jacob is the story of grace and sovereignty exercised upon a man who you could say outwardly didn't deserve it based on his order of, of the pecking order. But this made, of course, Esau very angry, and even Isaac, his father, feeling deceived, was angry. And so he, they sent, and they banished Jacob from their family. They sent him out. And so we come to a place in the story where Jacob is no doubt distressed, fearful. He's being chased by his brother who wants to kill him. And he finds himself in this place, as you can read, and of course, he's now around 55 miles from home, bereft of the comforts of home, family, form, home, and fatigue. He's solitude, he's alone. Can you get into his flesh just a little bit? What decree? What promise? Life stinks. Now, I know you've been there. You've been there, Christian. You've been there if you're not a believer. It happens to all of us. This disillusionment, life ain't what it's supposed to be. This grand moment of his anointing as the covenant head, this amazing storyline that's going forth with the history of God over and over, recommitting himself to the promise once made to Adam, seems very far away to Jacob. So too, we look in our world, don't we? Just don't look right. We look at our world and it just... It's just not going in the right direction. We all hear ourselves say it. We see it on the news. Something's not right. We feel alone. Solitude is strange from God in a world like this. Jacob is a beautiful depiction of what life is really all about, this side of heaven meets earth. And we begin to wonder, is the story true? Is the hope alive still? You can imagine Jacob thinking that maybe, maybe he misinterpreted God. Maybe something's wrong here because from every evidence, God has left him. He is alone. And so we pick up with that story in verse 11 where he took some stones and he put them under and around his head and went to sleep. I mean, what a pillow, huh? I mean, he's pretty, he's, he's pretty desperate. Uh, this is his little house under a tree with stones piled up for a pillow. Um, I think he's lost sight of things. It's interesting the way it's described because, because later this little pile of stones, and if you've been reading through this one story of the redemptive people of God, you would know that that is a very symbolic description of the great uh, and sacred pillars, the great and sacred altars, if you will, where blood sacrifice would have been made. The great and sacred place of meeting with God that was given once to Abraham. 
in the very same language. This whole story, as you'll see, is told in language exactly reminiscent of the story of Abraham, as if he's on his same journey yet again, leaving a, a, a land he loved for a land he did not yet see but was promised, a land that was going to be Eden to him. And so you have this amazing story picking up, and secondly, then, this word place. It's interesting how, how much emphasis is given to this word. And when you're studying Scripture, that is something you have to be very careful to notice. It's when there is this repetition of words. There's a curious fourfold repetition, and it starts in verse 11. And he came to this, and this is, insert, this is important, this certain place. Now, you already know, if you're reading carefully and slowly, and I beg you to read your Bible more slowly if you don't, you already know that when this thing happens, this certain place, that this is not like all places. This place is somehow different than other places. There's something that's setting this place apart. But we in the story, in the reader of the story, we don't know what that is yet. All we know is it's a place of destitution, a place of estrangement, a place of feeling that God is absent in his life. He's alone in a world that's going to hell in a handbasket, you could say. Again, we understand that, right? Walking out of this place, a world that just makes us not really believe we're on the right path. We seem like the only people who believe this thing when we go to work. Are we crazy? I mean, are you in touch with that? How hard it is to believe in southern New England no less than it was for Jacob. And so what he saw is a pile of rocks and a desperate pillow. The narrator wants to tell us that he's really at a very special place. And it goes on, this word place in verse 16, uh, when he awakes over and over three times, splash, 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 this word place shows up. It's not accidental that the word place, the Hebrew word here is used to describe the place of tabernacle under the Mosaic Covenant the place of temple under the Davidic covenant. Interesting. And so here we have this amazing place that later will be described, this is none other than the house of God. The gate of heaven. Now I'm hearing that song, you know, sung by the all sons and daughters. And you've got this angelic choir coming in the background, and it's getting really eerie, and it's getting really mystical, and there's something going on here that is going to be a little mind-challenging, you know, but also act-tingling. This is a mystery. This is a special, certain place. But we don't know much about that yet until we go to the, and hear about the dream. And behold, there was a ladder. Now, that word ladder in the Hebrew really, it's a sad sort of translation. It gives you this very wimpy-looking little ladder going up. The word is the same word that would have been used to describe a ziggurat. That is more like what you would see in uh, the sacred uh, you know, pyramids of a great ladder that goes up to heaven. That's what this is. This is a ziggurat. This is that which is the absolute perfect image of human trust and ingenuity upon ourselves, of works righteousness. Think back in Babel. The Tower of Babel is described with this word. So here we have yet a Babel moment. 
That is that place where humans rejected God and they trusted in their own ingenuity to bring about heaven meets earth, to bring about this great Edenic promise of the whole earth becoming. Now, does that sound familiar? There's even a Christian version of this. It comes out of a certain kind of what we call eschatology, a view of the end times. It's called postmillennialism in a more secularized way. There's a non-secular way of, of understanding post-mill. But don't get wrapped up in my words. That's not the point. But here's the description. There is a kind of Christianity, and I'm sorely fearful that we, even in this congregation, are tempted with this greatly, given our context of life and how we live it every day. And it goes like this, that there's a great coming of the heaven of God to earth, the millennia, as it's described. And in this coming, uh, there's a, it's going to come in a way that's after there is a great salvation event on earth. And in that great salvation event, humans now will build the cigarette. We, in our ingenuity, somehow there's a kind of non-supernatural-esque way of thinking about building then this great coming of the Eden kingdom. We rely on our education. We rely on our money. We rely on our politics. We rely on our economics. And we have underneath all of that what? A noble dream. A dream of heaven on earth. If only we could just discover the new discovery, the new technology, the new worldview, the new psychology, the new mind study. We, we could rid ourselves of all this curse and all of this destitution. That is even a Christian view of the world that is historically at least heretical. Now I would suggest that probably if I ask you, are you relied upon yourself for the coming of Eden, for the spread of the great Edenic vision in the world? You'd say no. But then if you were to ask yourself, listen to yourself, well, how do you pray then? What are your prayers targeting? Are they targeting things that relate to your own ingenuity and endeavors? Mainly. Are there circumstantially reactions? Mainly. Or is there this sense, this concept of, of a ziggurat, a stairway that would unite, that would meet heaven to earth but it's a supernatural one, one that is not of our own making, one that must come from God from heaven to us. And that's exactly what this passage points out. It is a stark contrast to Babel, how this heaven is constructed. It's from heaven, notice. It's not from earth to heaven. It's from heaven to earth. And then more importantly, this vision envisions this incredible uh, and so there's this kind of weird self-reliance that is very subtly now being put aside. It begins to reinterpret, listen to this, it reinterprets the life of Jacob to where his destitution now seems quite appropriate because what he's discovering is his own impotence to fulfill the great dream that God has given him in his decree as the covenant head of Israel. For the heaven meet earth dream. Think about that, Christian. How would this reinterpret your struggles and sacrifices and sufferings? How would this reinterpret your disillusionment in this world? You work yourself to the bone, 
Maybe you achieve the things that you wanted to achieve. You get the degree. You get the job. You get some prestige with it. You get a little money with it. You get the fine family. You join the right clubs. And we're still suffering. We're still not fulfilled. We're still hungry. Desperately hungry. That's the point. We see here Jacob, depressed, losing faith, losing sight, alienated, now given a dream where the great ziggurat, representative of heaven and meets earth, is not a human upward endeavor. It's a God downward endeavor. And if you don't figure that out, says this passage to Jacob. You really will be lost in your life. You really will be destitute because there is something. There is a communion. There is a presence. There is a power. There is a grace. There is a reality that transcends all those other things that you in this, quote, secular post-mill version of the coming of the kingdom of God would put your hopes in, Christian. And the key here is in that ascending and descending language. See, where, where and how is this kingdom coming? It's all supernatural. It's these angelic messengers. The word angel really is a messenger, a representative, a, an advocate, if you will. These angels, I believe here, and, and as they are used throughout history, and I don't have time to show you that, is indicative, I believe here, of, of this great Holy Spirit of God. And this Holy Spirit of God that enables us to believe, that enables us to hope, that fulfills, that, that constructs even the history of, of the world into a way where this heaven meets earth will happen. There's a kind of assurance here that's coming. And so there we have it, the ascending and the descending. There is these mediators, if you will, between heaven and earth. And these mediators are on this ladder bringing the hopes and the dreams of the people of God to God and bringing God's power and promise and grace to the people, this amazing conduit of electrical-like salvation energy. I mean, this dream, don't think of it as this little, I don't know, surreal, I don't know, beige-looking ladder. I mean, this is, this is a picture that would require an electric guitar making some really wild sounds. Because we're there, this is electric. This is a miracle. And so we have this amazing thing. From creation, where the place was Eden, where heaven met earth. It's interesting how it's described there. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's interesting here is this idea of heavens and earth. We might be thinking it's the invisible heavens and the visible earth. Because later in verse 6, you'll see how on the visible earth, there is both the visible heavens and the visible waters below earth. So the importance of that observation, just to get your head around it, is that we have here in Genesis this beginning that says, in the beginning there was God. God made all things, both the invisible realm and the visible realm. And then the target talks on the visible realm, 
And in the visible realm, we have this amazing story of the creation of the earth. But what's really important about it is this creation story in Genesis is told as to, in no uncertain terms, tell you that earth is God's temple. And what separates God's temple from all other places in the cosmos, all other planetary existence, if you will, is that this earth, this temple earth, what makes it temple is the Holy Spirit, in verse 2, hovering like a glory cloud over the earth. An image very clearly taken from every single description of the tabernacle and, and temple throughout the old temple. Uh, temp, uh, you know, context. And if you're using your head and you know a little bit about the New Testament, it's the same image of the Holy Spirit descending upon the temple, Jesus Christ. The same image of the Holy Spirit being given unto the church in John 14. The same image of the temple coming down from God, from heaven, upon the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's all there. You want to care to take notes and go back and look at it? It's all there. This is an amazing event set into an amazing history where the place of the invisible heavens comes to the earth in Eden. Eden means a place of delight, often described because of its context as the house of God, the place of God's dwelling, in other words. This goes all the way through the patriarchal age into even the new covenant. And that brings us to the promise. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Now imagine now, this is Jacob. The world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. His life seems to be in tatters. And God says, what I promised in the gospel that was once given to you, I assure it. I seal it. It will happen. And as a pillar of remembrance, as proof to this fact, I will set up little heaven meets earth places, these certain distinct places on earth, these little heaven meet earth places. They are called temple, tabernacle, church of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story. It involves land. This is not some invisible church or temple or place. It involves land, place. It involves people, the descendants of the faith-bearing patriarchs and all who would follow after them. For a people of faith, there will be places I want you to just take a deep breath and think about that for a minute. There will be places on earth where you can go as a guarantee to the ultimate hope and promise of earth becoming such a place one day. You can go to these places and you can be assured at those places that there is a supernatural, mystical communion of God in the invisible realm amidst the people in the visible realm. And this is language that you're going to hear all through the New Testament. People like Jesus 
who would say the disciples upon this rock. I wonder why rock, with the history of rocks. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The great assembly of God's covenant people is what that word means. And what's going to happen on this church? Sounds like a description of Jacob's great ziggurat from heaven. There will be binding and loosing on earth as there is binding and loosing in heaven. There's this something mystical going on that's heaven meets earth. He tells his disciples how to pray. Pray, God, you know, Father, our Lord, whatever. How, how do you start it? Get me started here. Our Father who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. A holy, gracious, holy God of history. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now we're talking Eden here. Come on, Eden, bring it down. Where? Come on, help me out. On earth as it is in heaven. That is what your Bible is all about. The prayer of the people. The prayer of Christ for his people. The guarantee of such a prayer's fulfillment being manifest even to this day in the church of Jesus Christ. It's not accidental then as we go through this passage how the response is here, for I will not leave you. I will not leave you. Does that sound reminiscent to you? Last words of Jesus to Matthew after he'd said this binding and loosing thing in Matthew 16, Matthew 28, what does he say? And lo, I will not leave you. This is after he instituted this place called a church after the image of the temple, after the image of the tabernacle, after the image of the pillars in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after the image of Noah's uh, ark, after the image of creation itself in Eden. And lo, I will not leave you. I am with you until the end of the earth. If you could read the Gospel of John, the whole second half is is a commentary on that statement. As he says, I go to a place that you can't go, invisible. But hey, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you here alone. I will come to you, he says. And you're going, hold it, you just said you're going up there, but you're coming down here again? Yep. In the mystery of the Holy Spirit, I'm coming. We see that in John 1, 51, the passage you heard read. <laughs> Didn't you like that? I mean, we have the same circumstance. We have Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree. That's almost always a figure for Nathaniel is disillusioned and tired and, and, and really skeptical right now. And didn't you love that, that little statement, that little honest statement by Andrew? Can I really believe this? Isn't that how we feel? Can I really believe this Christianity in the midst of a world that just makes it feel so irrelevant to my life? Can I really believe this? And what does Jesus do? He reminds him of Jacob. He says, you're going to see some greater things than the fact that I just knew who you were under that tree. That's, that's nothing compared to what you're going to see, because what you're going to see, Nathaniel, is the angels ascending and descending upon me. Who does that make Jesus? There's been great debate in the commentaries. Is Jesus here saying, I am the latter, I am the ziggurat? Or is he saying, Jacob Imaging that image saying that I am the successor to Jacob. I think that's probably right. But either way, the point's clear. Jacob's stairway to heaven 
I am. And I'm going to heaven that I might now establish that transaction, not just where my body walks every day in his incarnational ministry. I'm going to establish that transaction everywhere you go out and build my church. Now, it's a supernatural church. It can't just be built any other, any other way. I fear this is a message we need to hear loud and clear today. Because over and more and more, what I see happening in, in church and church planting in the world, especially in America, is this kind of best practices inspired by populist democratization or populist Americana, where, where what we're doing is building a church that will satisfy the cravings of a populist community. Something that will entertain me, something that will give me a great experience, something that will, and we lose the architecture, the sacramental, the prophetic, the priestly, the kingly, the governing, the shepherding, the household architecture of what makes a temple church a temple church. Please listen to me. This is my greatest fear for you. Is around us in the fear that that Christianity is going away, we're starting to rebuild churches in the image of Americana rather than the image of the stairway of heaven. An architecture that has to be carefully designed not from us but from God to us. That's the difference. The Babel Ziggurat built a church based on best practices in my own imagination of how to get to heaven, in my own ingenuity, in my own wisdom. We must stay fast. Go back to the scriptures. Listen to the apostolic foundation that Christ gave to his apostles and build our church that way. We have church builders sitting in this room right now. I admire, I admonish you to do it that way. But then in closing, notice the response. Two responses. The response that we see here is, is, is just fantastic. One is the response of assurance. What does Jacob say? And this is what I ask you to say in a few minutes as you come to this table. He says, because of the existence of this church, because of what I see in the household of God and the family of God, the hearing of the word, the preaching of the word, and the transformation of lives that happens over time, in place, in cities, among a real people, people in place, the promise of God is this, then received by grace through faith. He says, quote, surely the Lord is in this place. Man, he just had a second conversion. We don't believe in second conversions, really, but whatever it is. It was a renewal, revitalization, whatever you want to call it. The Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. I didn't know it. You thought this, oh, I'm, just, I, I'm, not, I'm not religious trend was a new trend, didn't you, Christian? You thought that was something just really unique to our sophisticated world that, that's kind of got, well, that's what Jacob's saying. Lord, I'm, I, I, I'm not a religious person. I, I didn't know that. I, I, couldn't, I didn't know that, that there could actually be a, a, a mystical, supernatural presence of God in a very real place among a very real people. That's what he says. Let me read it slowly again. Surely the Lord is in this place. Not thought, not feeling, not surreal idealism. This messy 
place under a fig tree, says Nathan. This messy place upon a pound of rocks, says Jacob, is this mystical, supernatural transaction. And he goes on to say, verse 17, and he was afraid. I mean, that means he's beginning to worship now. He's beginning to worship. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. Same word the scripture used to describe you and me in this place today. The house of God. And this is house of God. The gate of heaven. How would that change your life if you believe that? Right now, take assurance. God has not left you. No matter your circumstance, God has not left you. You're here because you, God wants you to hear this message. He's not left you. It's here. One. Two. The next thing that Jacob does is he takes a vow. And in so many words he says, now that I see what this place is, I give to you my whole life in devotion to this place. He uses the same language as Abraham does, a tent, which represents a whole. And he says, I give you my whole life. For this dream, this is the dream of all dreams, the hope of all hopes. And you have convinced me once again, God, that it's real. It's happening. Amen.